Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. All right, folks, we are on episode 11. This is going to be Swarm Season and Expansion Part 2. So hopefully you just listened to Part 1. You've got all of the background info on swarming and why it happens and what you can do to prevent it. Now we're going to get a little bit more specific on how you're going to kind of configure your, your colonies and different types of options that you have at your disposal and uh, I think I mentioned kind of at the end of the previous episode, if you're only going to keep one or two or three colonies, you know, a lot of this might not be applicable. You can just standardize on one type of configuration, do the same thing for all of them. And, you know, if it's working, great. Another option would be to run two or three different configurations and see which one works best for you, right? You can do whatever you want to do. This is your, your world. This is your apiary. So manage it however you would like. Okay, what I want to talk about first there's a gentleman. I, I saw him on YouTube. Jeez, it's probably been a couple of years ago. And I was really kind of impressed by him because he, he's, he's a Canadian beekeeper, bright young man. But what I was kind of, um, what I was kind of caught off guard with is, you know, this is back when I first saw him, like I was still using full gear. I was, you know, head to toe covered. I was using gloves. I didn't, you know, I never got anywhere near a colony without 100% protective gear. And he was wearing Carhartt overalls, a white t-shirt and just a veil. So nothing protecting his arms, nothing protecting his, his hands. So that intrigued me by itself. And that, that was just kind of, you know, like, Ooh, okay. What's this guy doing here? But uh, anyway, his name is Devin D E V A N and Ron R A W N. He has a great YouTube channel, tons of really good content. I've never actually talked to him. He has no idea that I'm, I'm name dropping him on the, on the podcast here, but uh, he's got a lot of really good content, but the one thing I wanted to bring up, which is something that was a suggestion that, that he made and, and it's something that he does, he put together some, some math and some numbers to support it. So I'm going to kind of go through it with you guys to talk about what I think is a really, really great option. And it's something that I've seen another Canadian beekeeper use as well. It's a kind of configuration that he uses for part of his kind of overwintering configuration. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit too. But one of the one of Devin's, I don't want to call it a claim to fame because I'm I'm sure maybe I'm probably the only one who thinks it's really nifty and cool. But what he does is he has standardized on a single brood chamber. So what I mean by this is he takes one deep, and of course he has his bottom board, his deep hive body sits on top of the bottom board, and then he has his ten frames. Above the ten frames, he's running. Uh, I believe he is running all mediums above that, it's very possible he may have a deep, another deep on top of that, and then mediums beyond that. That That's probably what I would do, but I'll, I'll go into that more later. But what he is doing in his kind of configuration is what we would refer to as a single brood chamber. 
So he puts that one deep hive body down with the 10 frames, uses a queen excluder on top of it that keeps the queen then from moving up, you know, any higher in the colony. And then he runs, you know, honey supers all above that. Now, there are some interesting things to think about with this. If you look at a typical bee layout, I guess if you will, within a, a colony, it's pretty common that you'll see the brood chamber tends to be centered and it moves kind of vertically. So if you have, let's say you had a single deep, maybe the, you'd have like four frames of, of capped brood, let's say in the middle, four or five frames. And then it's not uncommon to see a frame or two directly above that or even three, depending on the size of the colony, up into that second brood chamber because the bees kind of like to move in that, that vertical way, keeping the, the honey and keeping the food stores and reserves to the outsides. What this does is it forces the queen and the workers in that lower brood chamber to move left and right. So it forces them to make full use of that whole space. Now, we've talked about some techniques in the past of how we can do that, right, where we can take a frame from the edge, frames 1 or 10, that are foundation, and we can stick them into the middle to kind of force, you know, right in the middle of the brood chamber to kind of force the bees to draw up that comb because you've broken up their brood space and they don't like that. That's one trick you can use, like we mentioned. But anyway, what it does is, it, again, it's forcing the queen to make use of that entire space. And a lot of people have made the case, like, no, 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 you can't do that because the queen wants to move up into that higher space and you just don't have enough cells. There's just not enough available cells for the queen to lay in a single brood chamber. So what Devin did is he actually did the math on this, and I'm going to share that math with you, again, giving him full credit for his his labor and, and his efforts to get that information to you. On a single deep frame, you have 3,520 cells per side. Now, this is approximate, right? I mean, I don't think that the bees are doing a lot of math behind this, and you know, maybe they have 35, you know, 19 on one and 35, 21 on the other, plus or minus a couple hundred, right? This is going to give us some good ballpark numbers. So that gives you, uh, on the front and the back, 7,000 cells per frame. Now, if you have a 10-frame super, multiply that times 7,040, you have 70,400 cells. Now, if on average a queen is able to lay 1,500 eggs a day, we'll say, and if the worker cycle from egg to worker is 21 days, that's 31,500 cells that could be laid within that 21-day period. So again, queen's laying 1,500 eggs a day times 21 days, 31,500 cells that she can physically lay eggs in, and you have 70,400 available cells. So there are more than twice as many cells available than she can actually lay. So if you look at a typical frame of brood, you'll see brood generally all throughout the middle, sort of in an ovular shape on the frame. And then on you, know, you might have some little bit of um, maybe some drone brood kind of down in one corner. Maybe the upper left might be some pollen, and the upper right might be some pollen and some honey. You know, they'll they'll put a little bit of um, you know pollen and honey and different things that are around that brood so that they can have things to feed and nourish. You know, the young larvae and uh, and having food stores that are available for new emerging nurse bees and things like that. So roughly, I mean, you have fifty percent of the capacity that is still available. So mathematically, there's no reason why this type of configuration shouldn't work. This is what Devin does exclusively, and I think it's a great idea. Uh, I did do it on one colony 
a couple of years ago. And the only reason that I'm not doing it today, and I'm, I'm actually probably going to go back to it a little bit. I can touch on that a little bit more later. But the only reason I'm not doing it today is because I've pretty much standardized on the Michael Palmer approach where I take a 10 frame deep. I have a divider in the middle, four frames on each side. And then I put two four frame nukes on top of that, two four frame nukes on top of that entrance on one side another entrance on the opposite side. So I'm running two colonies on one deep footprint. I really like that layout. It's really easy. Excuse my horse voice here. I've got the, uh, I didn't take my Zyrtec last night. I got a little seasonal allergy thing going on here. So uh, the pollen is at a pretty good peak for us. But I really like that setup. I think it's great. It's easy to do inspections. It's easy to manage. And it's just, it works for me. Plus using a lot of nukes around the apiary anyway, it's really easy to just move something from one to the other and I like it, but as I am doing more pollination and, and I get more pollination contracts, it tends to be a little bit easier when you can take a pallet and they have these pallets that are set up with um, brackets that are designed to hold it. Well, um, let me step back. The pallet is designed with an integrated bottom board and then it has these brackets on it that you can set a deep hive body into that keeps it in place and then you can put four of them on a pallet. So I have multiple pieces of equipment that have forklifts or, for, or you know, at least the ability to use a forklift attachment, and I can move four colonies at a time. Now, based on the configuration I do where I have two deeps, I'm sorry, two colonies per deep, for me, essentially, I could have eight colonies on a single pallet. So I, I really, really like that approach. But if I have a contract where they say, hey, look, we need to have, for example, the one contract I'm doing this spring... I need to have, they've required two deeps or one deep and two mediums per colony. In order for me to to meet that contract, I I would have to have a separate discussion with them to say, hey, look, this is how I'm doing it and this is why. Are you okay with it? And and see if they would be okay with a different approach. But long story short, the reason that I'm probably going to migrate back to this kind of a strategy and approach is because they like to see those deeps. And it's nice, too, because sometimes when you're using a smaller configuration like a nuke or or nuke stacked on top of a nuke, they can fill up those frames pretty quickly. And uh, the last thing I want to have is multiple colonies on a pollination contract and have have them swarming because they're out of space. Anyway, I really like this approach. I'm going to start using it again some more this year. And the one thing I would make a note about is with the queen excluders. There are different types you can buy. There's plastic ones, there's metal ones, but the ones that I prefer, the ones I like the best, it's metal with a wooden frame around it. So just like all of your other hardware that you're stacking, wood stacked on top of wood, stacked on top of wood, this queen excluder has probably about maybe three quarters of an inch of wood framing around it. It makes it really easy to take off. So you just you know, slide your hive tool in, press up, and you can pull the whole thing off, and it's really easy. The queen excluder that's by itself, whether it's plastic or metal, you know, the bees are going to propolize everything. And what I found is that when you stick your hive tool in and you peel it off, there's always like this residual propolis on it. And it seems like it just doesn't, it doesn't come off as easily and it doesn't go back on as well. I just like the wooden framed ones. Now I recognize if you're on a budget or you're only keeping a couple of colonies, maybe it makes sense. Just go ahead and you just, I, I always say, use whatever you have, use what you got. But I really like the ones that are framed. So if you want to spend a couple extra dollars on the framed ones, I think it's a good approach. The next option that you have would be the double brood chamber. And this is the more traditional approach, right? You're going to put a deep down, 
the colony continues to grow. You get to about 70-80% capacity. You put another deep on top of that. The colony continues to grow. And then the next step typically above that would be to add in a queen excluder and a medium honey super. Now, I've introduced a couple of things in here that could be controversial, so let me talk about that a little bit. A lot of beekeepers are adamant about not using a queen excluder. They've said, oh, no, no, if you have a you know, double brood chamber, the queen would never go all the way up into those mediums anyway. She's got plenty of space down below. I never use them. I think that's okay. I, I don't have a problem with that. I have several colonies. In fact, right now, I don't have a colony where I'm using a queen excluder. I don't have a need for one. It doesn't matter. Where it becomes potentially more important is when you are trying to produce honey for yourself or a business for you know, friends and family, whatever it might be, because you don't want the queen going up and laying in your honey supers. It's just, you're better off to keep your, your honey frames and your brood frames. You want to keep all that stuff separate. I'll go on another tangent here, but you know, most of the things that are negative, that negatively affect or impact bees take place in the brood chamber, whether it's hive beetles, varroa mites, you know, tracheomites and you know, whatever, almost anything, foul brood, chalk brood, all these things that go wrong and go bad in a, in a colony tend to happen in the brood. So that's where I recommend just keeping everything that is not brewed separate from everything that is brewed. That way you don't get in a situation where you're having honey stored that you're serving to people where there's any possibility of you know, residual anything, right? Like I treat for varroa mites uh, at a smaller scale, you know, apivar on a larger scale, oxalic acid, but whatever you're using to prevent or treat for varroa, Again, you don't want that anywhere near your honey and your honey supers. So that's a, another thing to talk about. But one challenge that you'll see with this kind of double deep approach is it's heavy. And what I mean by that is let's say that, that first deep is mostly a, a lot of uh, capped brood, maybe a little bit of honey. And then the second deep, let's say that it's completely filled with honey, right? you got a great spring flow and the bees are just socking away honey that deep hive body is going to be heavy, right? And and I'm sure there's some pretty strong guys listening to this and they're like, oh, this guy's just a pansy. Like, he just can't lift anything up. I, You know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now, right? I'm not, not the young guy I used to be. But, you know, if you're lifting up one deep hive body that's completely loaded up with honey, it's not a big deal. If you're going to lift up 50 or 100 of them in a day and move them around, it becomes a big deal. It can be a real workout. That's why I generally try not to do a whole lot with the deeps. That's why I like the nuke approach better. You know, it just, it works better for me. But there's nothing wrong with that, right? If that's what you want to do and it works for you and you only have a couple colonies, or even if you have a, a second helper or a friend that can help you lift them up and move them around, by all means do that. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Uh, One thing I will recommend, this is something that someone has told me years ago that I did when I was keeping the double deeps. In the spring, uh, when it was, you know, first opportunity to do an inspection and, and get some things done, I reversed them because the, the colony will tend to work its way from the bottom up during the course of the winter as it eats through its stored reserves. So what ends up happening is maybe the queen and some of her crew will be up in that second deep where it's a little bit warmer up there during the winter. So you just kind of reverse them. So you kind of tear everything down in the spring, take that what is now the top deep of the brood chamber, put that at the bottom, take the one that was on the bottom and put that one on top. Again, if you don't do that, is she going to figure it out? I'm sure, right? Everything will be okay. But again, there's that tendency of the queens to be better at moving up than moving down. So if you have a queen excluder above that second you know, brood chamber and you just have honey supers above that, you're going to force her to kind of work her way back down. But like I said, I just reverse them at the beginning of the season and it works. Another option you would have would be all mediums or even all shallows. So that's another thing that I've seen, particularly as people get older and they're, they're not wanting to lift and move as much at, a, at one time. Because again, especially if you're on the commercial side of things, lifting all these things up and moving them around, it's going to take its toll on your back. But even if you're not doing it at a commercial capacity, you take you know a bunch of mediums or, or shallows that are loaded with honey and, and they've got some weight to them. So some people have standardized on just all medium everything. With that, I would say, just as I mentioned before, keep your brood, you know, your brood frames and your brood hardware separate from your honey supers. Now, another option I guess I should mention would be all deeps. You certainly can do that. I had a massive colony a couple of years ago. The only reason that I allowed this to happen was because they were just massively productive, but they were as mean as they could possibly be. But this colony had... You know, of, of the five traits I look for in a colony, they had four of the five. The one they didn't have was temperament. They were just so aggressive, but they produced so much honey. So what I would do with them is they were like my, my when I was trying to do splits and nukes and things like that, I would go in and just yank an entire deep off of them just to take the honey away and give that as honey frames to nukes that I was making. But they were three deeps high. I think I may have even been four deeps high at one time with that colony because I wanted to go into them as little as possible and I wanted them to produce as much as I could possibly get them to produce. And that worked for that colony, but it was really, really heavy. I don't recommend doing all deeps, even if you're really, really strong. Probably not the best way to go. The other option that I would suggest, and this is the one that I've mentioned many times before, and again, it's like that, that Michael Palmer style approach where you take a divided bottom board, you put the deep, divided deep on top of that, four frames on each side, and then you put four frame nuke boxes stacked on top of that on both sides. And that's kind of cool. There's something you can do with this that I never even knew about. So thinking about how, you know, colonies like to stay, you know, separated, you don't want to put two colonies together because... You know, they're, uh, they have a different queen, there's a different pheromone, they recognize that things aren't exactly the same. 
But what's really interesting is bees, honeybees really want to be around a laying queen. They want that queen pheromone. They want that. That's what makes everything in their world right and happy. As far as bees interacting with other bees, one of the strangest things I've ever seen is actually happening with this setup that Michael Palmer recommends. Go back with me for one second here. We have the deep, 10 frame deep that's divided. And we have two nukes that are sitting on top of that. Now, if I put a, you know, my covers on top of that, those two colonies are completely isolated. One goes out the front door and it's on its side of the um, box. The other ones come out the other door that's on the other side of the box. They're completely isolated. Now, in the wintertime, when they go to overwinter, they can form one single big cluster in the middle. They basically share a wall and they use each other's warmth to to make one larger cluster. It's really, really cool the way this works. I'll talk about it a lot more as we get close to winterization and preparing for winter. We'll, we'll talk about this again. But here's where it gets super cool. On top of that, um, of those two nukes that are now on top, you can put a queen excluder up there and then you can put one single, whatever size, shallow, medium, deep, doesn't matter. You can put a honey super up there and then another one and another one. You can put as many as you want on top of that, right? the bees will go up and intermingle with each other and they will store honey together, almost like a kind of like a commune kind of thing, like they all come together in this common space and they will draw up comb. They will store honey together. They will go up into the next super. They will draw up comb. They will store honey together. And then when they're done working up there, they will go back down into their respective side, their respective colony and make use of those resources in the winter as needed. But it's it's wild to think that there there's no contention, there's no anger. They don't go up there and start fighting each other. It's it's pretty wild. So I have not gotten to that point with with mine yet because mine are uh, long story, but I'm I'm still really on the I've had a couple of those colonies. I've overwintered winter, them. They've done okay, but I haven't gone kind of wide spread mainstream kind of um fully adopted strategy yet just because there's a lot of new hardware involved in that and it's a big investment but i use a ton of nukes uh, i overwintered nukes this year i have found for me personally based on the weather here and the temperature i'm pretty good with overwintering like double stacked four frame or five frame nukes i overwintered a triple stack so it's five frames over five over five 15 total frames overwintered that this year successfully but I had a couple of four-frame nukes that did not make it. It was kind of an experimental thing just to see how well a four-frame nuke could do. Uh, I had a couple of those. They did not make it. So that was, again, more of an experimental thing. Uh, but nukes are a great way to go, right? They're easy to manage. You put your bottom board down. You put your five-frame nuke on top of that. They need more space. You drop another nuke on top. You need more space. You drop another nuke on top. So now you've got 15 frames, right? And it's a nice vertical stack. Where it gets to be a bit challenging then is you're looking at 15 frames there. If you had you know, full-size deeps, you'd have 20 frames. You'd have five more frames of available space to use. But again, going back and looking at that math from Devin's numbers, you know, if you took you know, all the math and divided everything up, you would still have plenty of room for a colony to lay as many eggs and make as many workers as was needed to support the big fall buildup, plenty of frames to store honey in, and then as things tapered off and the, the population was diminishing going into the dearth, they would ramp up again in the, in the fall, right before winter, 
they'd have plenty of room to supplemental feed, uh, I'm sorry, for storage of additional nectar to become honey to once you're supplemental feeding them, getting ready for the winter. Plenty of space for that. I've proven that that works very, very well on a three nuke, you know, 15 total frames. So there are a lot of different ways to do that. I'm still experimenting with a lot of it myself. There's people on YouTube. If you look at, I think it's called a Canadian beekeepers blog. I can't remember this guy's name to save my life. Super good guy, though. He and his wife, they keep bees. i got a couple of kids in Canada. They maintain a ton of, uh, I'm trying to remember. I think he's got a few thousand colonies. So a lot of different ways to do things. I'm not going to say there's no wrong way to do it because there probably are some ways that can be really tough. I'll give you a quick example. I really like the two-frame nukes. They're great for starting new colonies. They're great for doing quick splits. They are not a great approach for long-term. And I got into a bit of a bind last year where I was confined for space personally, like getting things moved from one place to another. So in the interest of time, I just stacked a couple of two-frame nukes on top of each other. So I had, you know, a new colony with two frames. They needed space. I dropped a two-frame nuke on top. They needed more space. I dropped another one on top. And I just kept doing other things. And then they swarmed. They didn't have enough space to store food. Like, it was a disaster. It was So there are wrong ways to do things. I would say I have no reservations about sharing my failures with you because I don't, you know, I'm not... I'm incentivized in no way to hide my failures. I would rather fail, share that with you, and then hopefully you can learn something from it and not make the same mistakes, the costly mistakes that I've made. And hopefully you'll uh, you'll have more fun because you know it's it's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking. You know when you uh, put a lot of time and energy into the bees, and those first couple years were were kind of miserable. I think that again, one of the biggest mistakes I made, like I've mentioned today and I've mentioned in previous episodes, was the fact that I didn't. I don't know. Sometimes I get this kind of arrogance where I feel like, oh, well, I'm I'm smarter than the average person, so I don't need help. I can just figure this out on my own. And it ends up costing me money. And I it cost me the bee lives because I just thought that I was smarter than the average person, and I didn't need anybody's help. And in beekeeping, I would really, really recommend to reach out for help. It's a great community. I would say, you know, like everything in life, when I was in the Army years ago, my dad said to me, you're going to spend 90% of your time on 10% of your people, right? You get that 10% of people that are just, for lack of better words, are just jackasses, you know? And that's it's the same kind of thing in honeybees. But 90% of the people are really, really good people. They want to help. They're passionate about what they do. They're excited about it. They recognize the difference that it makes in their communities, you know, for our food resources and things like that. So don't, you know, don't be like me, right? Don't be too proud to, to ask for help. Get into a club or ask people. Like I said, worst case scenario, Drop me an email. It's just Jeff at beekeepingfornewbees.com. I'm always happy to, to you know, respond back, give you my, my two cents. I'm going to kind of wrap things up here. This is, you know, part two of the swarm season and expansion. Got to put together some notes and see what we're going to do next time. I've got a crazy, crazy busy few weeks ahead of me, but God willing, I'll find a way to put together at least maybe two more episodes, hopefully this month. And... As things start to taper a little bit here, and maybe in the June-July time frame, we can start getting into, you know, discussions around supplemental feeding, maybe put together a video showing you how I build my feeders and how I use them, you know, talking about getting ready for winter. I mean, it's weird to be sitting here in, in the early spring in May and already thinking about winter, but I guess if you want to be a beekeeper, you got to think like the bees, right? I mean... 
they're thinking about the winter now, maybe we should be too. So we'll put together some new content here and hopefully, uh, you know, I need to do more work here. Like I mentioned before, we'll get that YouTube channel up and running so I can get you some videos and show you some things that are going on hands on. If there is anything that you want to see, right? If you've looked at a couple of videos or pictures online and you're like, Jeff, I cannot find what you were talking about. I have no idea what that is or what that means or whatever. Again, shoot me an email. Let me know. Uh, I can put together, you know, a video that walks through something. It's not not too hard to do. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Take care, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Bye bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.